All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you don't leave us alone. That while we believe every word written in the scripture, we also believe that you visit us with your presence and you affirm. And you've done that today and you continue to do that today. And as we've gathered together today, we have chosen a number of outlets, a number of ways that we would worship you today. And uh, today and now I think we would move into another way that we can worship you. And that is to open up your word and allow your spirit to teach us and to instruct us, to encourage us, to challenge us. Each one of us have different needs this morning. Every person under the sound of my voice, both those in this room and those watching across the internet have different needs this morning. And I pray that you would meet each one of us at that place of our need. Now I pray as we look at this, these verses in this psalm uh, that they would come alive to us. We would see what we hadn't seen. We would hear what we haven't seen that's been there all this time. I thank you in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, Psalm 78, we will continue our study. Uh, Looks like that today and next Sunday we'll complete this psalm. Uh, Today I've entitled, Our Merciful and Long-Suffering God. Um, You know, it's, yeah, you're right, Howard. Thank you, Lord. Um. This psalm, if you let it, it could, it could depress you a little bit because uh, the children of Israel, especially during the time of leaving Egypt, uh, on the one hand, uh, are a bunch of knuckleheads. And yet, on the other hand, when we look in the mirror, <laughs> it looks a lot like the children of Israel. Because we're all, in some ways, we're all knuckleheads. Somebody just said, speak for yourself, Pastor. Well, okay. Used to be I couldn't spell knucklehead, now I are one. But anyway. Uh, last week, we, we covered, of course, a section uh, of this psalm. And the lessons that we learned from last week, can't, can't uh, elaborate on these today. Again, they are available in various sources uh, the first thing that I saw last week is that we re- we learned from them that we should always remember God is the is the Most High, and that's the key. And I, I pointed that out last week that He said, "Remember, God is the Most High," um, and there, so there's no need for us to defy Him, no need for us to challenge Him. Um, in that, in and they were challenging Him in the wilderness where they needed him the most, where and when they needed him the most, they were challenging him. And sometimes we do the same thing. I quoted Pastor Charles Green last Sunday, and I'm going to give it to you this week. He, he said, and I, I don't think this is original with him, but he said, don't make a permanent mistake in a temporary land. Don't, when you're in the fire, when you're in the storm, when you're in the squeezing, make sure you don't make a permanent mistake in that temporary land because the mistake's going to be permanent, the land will not. And you will have consequences. Uh, we also learn to guard our hearts against t- 
testing God's limits, pushing God, pushing God to see what he's made of, so to speak, as if we didn't, we didn't trust him. Um, we learned from last week that we must embrace contentment instead of demanding what we crave. We have human beings, we crave things. And so instead of demanding what we crave, we embrace contentment in God. We quoted Paul when he said, I I, I learned how to be content with a little. I, I learned how to be content with a lot. So the little or the lot has nothing to do with your contentment. But it's the God who, who has something to do with our contentment. And, we, and when we do that, we choose to accept life according to God's terms. This is where we, this is where we bump up against uh, obstructions. Is we don't want to live according to God's terms. We want God to live according to our terms. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret that's not so secret. That's not going to happen. As hard as we try and as much as we attempt to manipulate God, he will not live on our terms. Why is that? Because he's got this big fat ego and he's insecure. No, because he knows that his terms bring life. Our terms bring death. He cares. We also saw that we should recognize all the time that God's goodness and commitment to us that he's good to us and he's committed to us all the time. We should not question what he's doing towards us and for us. We, we quoted Paul from Romans 9.20 when he said, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, how dare you answer back to God? They, they just didn't believe what he was doing. But anyway, here's what we believe. If he provided water, and he did for them, he provided water, out of a rock, that he'll provide whatever else that we need. If God has ever provided anything for you that you needed, you can count on the fact that he's going to continue to provide for you what you need. Not going away. I think the key here is that God really is saying to us that we have got to trust God. We've got to trust God without any reservations. And then finally, even still, in spite of their grumbling and complaining, he opened the windows of heaven. And he sent the manna and he sent the quail and provided food for them in the desert, even though they were grumbling and complaining. It's good to read about people who grumble and complain so we'll know what that looks like. I know it's foreign to a lot of us, but as we get into this passage today, um, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 78, verse 32 through 55. If you could and would stand while I read those verses. Today, I'm throwing you a little bit of a curve. I'm going to be reading from the New King James today, and it says, in spite of this, Let me go back and read verse 31. The wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Then we move into verse 32. In spite of this, the wrath of God coming and God slaying them, they still sinned. 
and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. And that's referencing the 40 years in the wilderness. When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and sought earnestly. Some of your Bibles say when he killed them. And they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that their God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. And then how often they, and of course the children of Israel, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Limited is probably not a good word there. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy. When he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, Turned their rivers into blood and their streams they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar frost. He also gave he destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath indignation and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. It gets better. Hang on. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. You could be seated. Don't get nervous. We're not going to cover all those verses in detail. But we start off with, in spite of this, they sin. Unbelief was at the root of their rebelliousness. And this is, this is the key throughout all scripture. Most of the time, God's people get themselves in trouble. It's due to unbelief. We don't really believe God. I said a few weeks ago, maybe last week, that If we believe God, we will obey God. If we refuse to obey God, it's because we don't believe God. And so if we believe he's bigger and smarter than us and wiser than us, then it behooves us to do what he says. And when we don't, it's evidence that there's some inkling inside of us that does not really believe him. And we need to believe him. The the children of Israel... They couldn't deny God working, his mighty works in the past. They couldn't deny all that he had done for them and to them in the past. But they would not accept that as proof of his power to do mighty acts in the future. And we do the same thing. 
We, God has delivered us, saved us, provided for us. And we say, hallelujah. I know he did that, but he probably won't do it again. I know he did that or even worse, he can't do it again. And yet the evidence is there that if God has provided, God will provide. If God has healed, God will heal. If God has delivered, God, he will deliver and so on and so forth. Verse 32 and 37 is what I call situational worship. Situational worship. He said, when he slew them, when he killed some of them, but is a better translation there, when he slew some of them, then they sought him. This is not only situational worship, this is reactionary worship. This is emergency worship. When things begin to cave in around you, all of a sudden you feel motivated to worship God. And it says, um, when he slew them, then they sought him and they returned and sought earnestly our God. In the moment of the crisis, in the moment of calamity, calamities have a way of creating temporary reformations. I, I was going to use the clip of Burt Reynolds at the end of the movie, The End. Except that I'd had, we'd had to bleep the whole audio of it. But Burt Reynolds' character in this movie decides he's going to commit suicide. And so he swims way out into the Gulf or ocean or something and he wants to drown himself. And he gets out there a long ways, and he all of a sudden he gets this, man, I want to live. I don't want to die. So he starts swimming back to shore. And, of course, the camera shot, you can barely see the shoreline. He's that far out. And he starts making deals with God. God, if you'll get, help me. If you'll help me, I, you know, I won't do this. If you'll help me. And at some point, he says, God, if, you, if you'll help me and get me back, I'll give you 10% of everything. You know, and he starts going on. And just before he gets to the shore, when he realizes he's not going to die, he said, God, you probably don't need that 10% anyway. He said, of course, I know you're probably the one that saved me, but you're also the one that gave me this sickness, which is not true. But by the time he gets his foot on the shoreline, of course, Dom DeLuise is shooting at him then, but uh, he's, he's complete. The deal is off. Why is the deal off? Because the calamity is gone. The pressure is off. We get serious in that moment, and we return and repent towards God. Often, that resolve that we've made, when the affliction is removed and the pressure is gone, so is our dedication, so is our repentance, so is our desire to worship God and call on God. How many of us know, don't raise your hand. And those of you at home, don't raise your hand either. <laughs> that it's when the trials come and the tough times come that we call on God. And until then, we say, God, I got it. And then we cry out. Scripture says they remembered God was their rock. In that moment, in the moment of crisis, in the moment of calamity, 
when God, for in his own wisdom, in his own sovereignty, and you just have to take it up with him, but when he took some of them out, even some of their strong ones and their young men, he took them out. I think he's removing unbelief. In that moment, they popped up and said, wait a minute, we got to seek God. Novel idea. They remembered that God was their rock and they remembered that the most high God was their redeemer. They remembered. I don't think it's remembered so much that they had forgotten those facts, but they had not, they had not paid attention to the fact that God was their rock. And he was their only place of security. He was their only, somebody said this morning, that he was their only defender. God was their only defender. And the only place they could find security was in him. The only, I'm going to tell you, the only place you can find security is in God. The only place you can find a real defender, capital D, is in God himself. Now, he'll use people in your life. He does. He uses people all the time. But at the end of the day, it's God himself that has redeemed you. It's God himself who's defended you. It's God himself who gives you the security of who you are. You understand that you cannot rely on human power, including your own. And they understood in that moment, and this is the key, they understood that their only place of trust was in God Almighty in that moment. But God called them on it. He called them out. Again, it's a little secret. It's not such a secret but you can't fool God. You can, you can try to look good to God. You can try to act like you got everything together. And all of us in this room will, will bite that and we'll believe that. But I can tell you what, you can try to make yourself look good to God all day long. But he, he knows you. Isn't that scary? <laughs> that God knows you. And as we'll see in a moment, what's great is he knows you and he knows me. And yet... We're still here. Malachi prophesied, the Lord said, I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, you are not consumed. That's a promise. He called them on their lip service. He says, uh, nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. And they lied to him with their tongue. They gave him lip service, which was a lie. You say, well, they were probably sincere. In that moment, they may have been. In that moment, they may have thought they were sincere because they were panicked. They were pressured. And they thought, right, we better call on God. And God said, They're, they're just trying to flatter me. Uh, Isaiah said it this way. These people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. And saints, we have to be careful of this. We have to be careful that we're not just giving God lip service. We're not just giving God words that we think he wants to hear. Again, he knows when we do that. 
God spoke to Ezekiel and he was telling him about the, how he would prophesy to the children of Israel. And he said this to Ezekiel. He said, they hear your words, but they don't do them. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. And, you know, the old axiom says, when it's all said and done, there's more said than done. The issue is the heart. Not, it's not what we say. It's not what we do. I mean, what we do comes out of our heart. But the bottom line is our heart. He said, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Their hearts are not after me. And that's what he said in this verse. He said, their heart is not steadfast toward God. And because it says their heart, and I, I worded it this way, their heart was not right with God. They wanted to act like they were, and they wanted to th see if they could fool God into thinking their hearts were right. But at the end of the day, he knew better. They made a profession of their faith or their worship, their trust. They made a profession with their lips. <clears throat> and yet the heart, their heart remained unaffected. And the reason we know that is because when the pressure's off, they go back to the way they were. I've said this many times. You've heard me say this many times. One of my greatest concerns has been for years is what I call professing Christians. And when I say professing Christians, my definition, it's not the definition, but the one I'm thinking is, is what I'm reading right here. People who profess with their mouth that they are Christians. And they may think they're Christians because, because they were born in the United States. They may think they were Christians because we are, quote, unquote, a Christian nation. That's beginning to be debatable. But they profess with their mouth that they're Christians, but their heart has never been changed. Some people have a hard time with the idea that if you are radically, unequivocally saved, if you have been regenerated by the power of God's Holy Spirit, and there has been a real, everybody say real, real. a real transformation of the heart, a real changing of the heart, a real transference from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. If all of that has happened to you, I don't believe it's possible for you to lose that salvation. Because if, if it is, then it's up to me. And I don't want my salvation to be up to me. I think what fools a lot of us is there's a lot of people who are professing Christians. But their heart has never been changed. They go through religious exercises. Religious things that they do. And we think, whoa, aren't they great Christians? But their heart has never been changed. And one day, they're over here doing something else. And you say, boy, they must have lost their salvation. No, they never had it. Real, a real conversion, God does. And if God does it, he doesn't undo it. I know I just made some people mad, but I will sleep just like a baby tonight.
because this is what I'm talking about. Profession made with the lips, a heart's unaffected. And he said also, they weren't faithful to the covenant. And the covenant is always, our covenant with God is always on his terms. Always. Now, this is where it gets interesting in this psalm. I mean, we have seen every kind of form of unbelief. We have seen testing. We've seen speaking against God. We've, we, we've saw everything you could imagine. And we're still seeing, you know, God said, they're just a bunch of, they're just running their mouth. They're professing faith in me, but they don't really have faith in me. They hadn't had, they hadn't had a heart change. And the scripture says it's an interesting thing. Thus our title, the scripture says, but he, God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. You would think he would just, you know, treat them like that apartment building down there and let some lightning strike them. You would think that after all they've done and all they've, and they're, they're continuing to do, that God would take them all out. As a famous comedian once said, I'm not going to call his name, I, I can take you out and make another one just like you. <laughs> and this, you would think, if you and I were God, <laughs> they would have been gone. After all, after the things that they did, we would have said, okay. Uh, how about another flood? Oh, wait, I can't have another flood because I promised Noah we wouldn't have one. Now what am I going to do? But that's not what happened. It says God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. That's interesting. In Exodus, we're not turning, but in Exodus 34, Moses had said to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Actually, that was in 33. God says an interesting thing. His answer is an interesting thing. God Show me your glory. And God said, okay, I'm going to show you my goodness and my mercy. And so, with basic math, we can deduce, it seems, that God is saying to us that he sees his glory. By the way, glory is a word that means a weightiness or substance. His glory based on his reply to Moses, his glory is his goodness and his mercy. That's the glory of God. Now, I understand Shekinah glory and all that stuff, but in that conversation, he's saying to Moses, I'm going to show you my goodness. And then he says, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to show you who I am. And he takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he turns around and he puts his hand over Moses and he passes by. Of course, Moses comes down from the mountain. Uh, his hair has been changed, even though he didn't get the full brunt of God's presence. But God begins to declare to Moses, and he said, the Lord, the Lord's name is. He's speaking of himself. And he says, the Lord is compassionate. The Lord is gracious or full of grace. The Lord is slow to anger. Aren't you glad? The Lord is abounding in mercy. 
The Lord is a God of truth or faithfulness to the truth. The Lord is a God of covenant faithfulness or loyalty. This is, this is what God says of himself. If you want to know who God is and who he wants you to know that he is, turn, turn to Exodus 34, 6 sometime and read. Then he says, and he's a God who forgives iniquity. Notice the bookends of this list, compassion and forgives. Forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Sometimes God is, the Old Testament God is painted as a mean, fire-breathing, ready-to-break-something kind of a God. And sometimes we see God judge people and things like that take place. But that's not what this picture paints. This picture paints a God who is merciful because they didn't deserve what he did. We see a God who is compassionate. He's, he has compassion on them and he forgives their iniquity. Then it makes an interesting sense. Well, it says this. It says, many a time he wanted to destroy them. In other words, many a time to destroy the nation of Israel would have been justified in God's eyes, in his own eyes, in a righteous God's eyes. He could have destroyed Israel and been righteous and just according to his nature. But then it says he remembered that they were only flesh. Now, I'll just let you know that God does not have a memory problem. He wasn't just sitting around on the throne one day reading the Reader's Digest and, and remembered, oh, I forgot. They were just flesh. That's not what it means. It just means that God called to his mind that the children of Israel were only flesh. They're just people. They're weak. They're erring. They're frail. The psalmist even says that they are a breath, a vapor, here for a moment and gone. Paul writes, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. God knew it before Paul knew it. And God sees us. He sees you as a human being. He sees you as having, being weak. Or let me say it another way, being weakened by sin and by fleshly inclinations. He understands that because God is the one who made them flesh. And so he had compassion on their weaknesses. He didn't, he didn't make them sinful. He didn't make them susceptible to his flesh, to their flesh. But he made them human beings and he made them with the capability of sinning and destroying everything, knowing that was going to happen. Somebody said, why, why didn't God just bypass that? Because of free will. Had to give us the opportunity. Had to give the race of human beings the opportunity to obey God or not. He made them flesh. And I want to say today that somebody listening to me needs to hear that God's not about to destroy you. 
Somebody thinks that God is done with them and you've done so many bad things, quote unquote, that he's just going to take you out. And that he can't forgive what you've done or in some cases what you haven't done. But I want to tell you, if he can forgive that bunch, he can forgive you. If he did forgive that bunch and we see written evidence that he did, he'll forgive you. If, if he'll have compassion on them, he definitely has compassion on you. If he restored them and he did, he'll restore you and so forth and so on. And then he recounts, the psalmist recounts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to go back and cover it all, but he recounts the time in the wilderness and all that these people had done. And that's covered from verse 40 to 51. They provoked him. They grieved him. They tempted him. They went on. And then he talks about the, the plagues that came. 51 destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt. And by the way, the destroying of the firstborn in Egypt was God's way of redeeming Israel. And then verse 52. But he made his own people go forth like sheep from Egypt, basically. And he guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Again. They were so full of unbelief and they complained and grumbled and yet God led them out of Egypt. Again, I referred last week to Cecil B. or Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. And when you see them leaving Egypt in that movie, I know it's not anywhere close to what it really was, but it's impressive enough. And it's this sea of people leaving and going out of Egypt. And God is taking his people and he has, he has done some, he's done the plagues, including the killing of the firstborn in all of Egypt, so that the children of Israel would be delivered out. He was their shepherd. He was their shepherd. He defended them. He provided for them. And he led them. Regardless of the, the previous few verses tell us that they still provoked him and tested him and he still led them, he still shepherded them, he still cared for his people. Now let me just say this real quick. This message is not a license for us to go out and, and sin. It's not a license for us to develop a sinful lifestyle. Because all you do when you do that is bring destruction on yourself. We, we joked yesterday about a certain someone and, and of course, this, there's a thousand of them out there that you go play golf with them and they hit the ball in the woods and they hit the ball in the other woods and they hit the ball across the fairway and they hit the ball over the green five times and they get it on the green and they putt and you say, what'd you have? I had a five. <laughs> they didn't even get to the green in five. And all you're doing, by the way, those of you who want to be golfers, don't. Do yourself a favor, don't. But all you're doing when you cheat like that is you're, you're, all you're hurting is yourself. Especially when we go out and play, we're not playing for anything. There's no money. There's no trophies. We're just going out and whacking a ball around. 
Somebody, I was playing with a guy the other day, and he said, man, he said, you're beating me so bad after so many holes. I said, look, when I come out here, there's only one opponent that I have, me. And so when you do that, you're just cheating yourself. I don't know how I got off on that. I want us to see that God is their shepherd and God is your shepherd. I'll go, I know what I was saying. It's not a license to sin, so it's not like, okay, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. Now, you, you, you misunderstand the whole thing. And the other part of that is, if your heart really is toward God, you're not, going, you're not even going to think like that. People used to say, well, what about that guy that just says, well, I'm going to go out there and sin, just sin like crazy, then if God's going to forgive everything I do. What do you think about him? I said, well, I think he needs to get saved. That's what I think. Because if, you're, if you've had a real heart change, you don't think like that. I mean, you're going to sin. You're going to do stupid things. You're going to fall into temptation occasionally. You're going to say things and do things and that you, in, in within five minutes, you're going to wish you hadn't have done it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who want to adopt a lifestyle that says, I'm not done. Thank you, Lisa. But I'm talking about that whole attitude of, well, then, okay, then I'm just going to do whatever the bloop that I want to do, and then God's going to forgive me. Well, I don't think it works that way. But on the flip side of that, I want you to see that when you do mess up, when you do show your flesh, when you do say that thing that you shouldn't be saying, when you do lose your temper, when you do go where you shouldn't go and partake in what you shouldn't partake in, when you, do, when you cheat on your taxes, I hope you feel bad. When you do that, God's not ready to crush you. He's ready to restore you. He, he said, okay, out we go. We brought them to Canaan, which is the land that was promised them. Canaan land. It says he drove out the heathen nations. He drove out. He said, hey, there, you know, there's some giants in there, by the way. You can go on in there. But I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to drive them away from you. Scripture says at the very end of our passage today, he says he brought them to his holy border. This mountain which his right hand had acquired. He drove out the nations, allotted them an inheritance, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. He had a purpose and he had a plan for this nation of people. He took them into the promised land. He said, this is, your, this is my land. I want you to live here. And here's your inheritance, and I've given you an allotment for your inheritance. I want to tell you that God directs your lives, and God will take you where he needs to take you. He, your footsteps are ordered by the Lord, and he, you will find yourself where he wants. As a matter of fact, David said, the lines have fallen to me in Psalm 16. The lines, or some versions say, your lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. He says, I have a good inheritance. In other words, wherever God has established your lines, where you live, where you function, where you, where you operate, wherever you do whatever it is you do, God has established your lines and your inheritance. And David says it's a good inheritance. David said those lines are pleasant. What's unpleasant is when we um, 
When we disregard our lines and we try to create our own lines. My wife and I were first married. We lived in, in Louisiana. Uh, by the way, just in case there's still there's one more person that has this misconception. We are not from Louisiana. <laughs> we did live down there. We did have two sons born down there, but we are not Louisiana natives. People, every day I run into somebody think, yeah, since you were Louisiana, you I said, I'm not from Louisiana. Um, lived here longer than lived anywhere else. So maybe I'm a Tennessean. But we, we, we got married. Uh, about a month later, after we were married, it's on me, it's not on her. I said, well, we need to move back to Panama City um, for various reasons. I'm not going to go into them. Um, all of them, well, not, they weren't wrong. Anyway, we moved back. We picked up a month after we were married, loaded up our little five-by-seven U-Haul trailer, <laughs> took off to Panama City, <clears throat> immediately realized we had moved the lines. God had lines laid out, and we said, I said to God, I don't like your lines. We're going to make our own lines. And so we picked up, no kids at this point. Of course, we've only been married a month. We didn't, you know, we're not that fast. (laughs) And so we moved back to Panama City. um, Immediately, no, we're out of God's will. Now, here's, here's here's the psalm. He didn't strike us down. He didn't kill us. He didn't give us a plague. As a matter of fact, he used us. Used us several ways in several places and continued to. And then one day, I heard the, the Lord say through various sources, now you need to get back to the lines that I drew and get out of the lines that you made. And so a little less than two years later, we moved back to South Louisiana, got back in God's will, got back in the place where the lines had fallen in pleasant places and began to function. Pastor my first church at 20 years old. I'm not sure if I pastored it or it pastored me. But anyway, <laughs> but that was part of it. We know what it feels like to be out of God's will. But we also know what it feels like for God to say, yeah, you, you blew it. You made a mistake, but I'm still going to use you right here. And then I'm going to get you back where you're supposed to be. And by the way, had we not gone back when we did and how we did, had we not gone back and, done, and, and worked where we worked and did what we did, uh, we would probably would not be here today. That's another story. And some of you are happy about that. Some of you are beginning to wonder. A fixed habitation and home. When I say fixed, it's not permanent. Because, again, at one point the lines for the Granger household was South Louisiana. But in 1986, those lines were moved here. Not Abundant Life Church, but Middle Tennessee. So it's fixed, but not permanent. God cares about you. That's the whole point of this message. God's a merciful God. He's a compassionate God. And even though we, we stray, he's still ready to have compassion on us. He's still ready to forgive our iniquities. And, and we need to repent 
turn back to him. And I guess the real key, and I'll finish. Of course, my phone's been finished. Real key is that our heart is his. Our heart is steadfast to him. And that we don't just pay him lip service. And when the, when the times get tough, it's okay to pray. It's okay to call on God. As a matter of fact, you should call on God. But let it be something from your heart. And when the pressure is off, when the calamity is gone, you don't disappear. You still call on God. Because he's still your God. Amen. You got over your nervous. All right. Cadence has something she wants to share with us. And then we'll be dismissed. She knows how to handle a mic, I think. Sometimes. I'm better at singing in it than talking in it, though. You can sing it. <laughs> so, um, the Lord just laid something on my heart during worship, and um, I felt like I was supposed to share it. And I don't know if it's more for me than it is for anybody else, probably, but... Um, I felt like it kind of ended up going with the message too, which is pretty cool. Um, just talking about what it is to have that heart change. And my best friend and I were talking last night about like, how do you, if God has to change your heart, then how do you, how do you, bring like how how do you posture yourself in order for your heart to be changed and one of the things they said during worship was declare to the heavenlies that the lord is in control of your life so i felt like specifically me but possibly somebody else um needs to actually declare with their heart and not just let it be not just let it be words and let that be where the power comes from and where the heart change is. So to the heavenlies and the masses and to the Lord, um, I just declare that my thoughts are the Lord's and he gets to control my mind and the busyness that happens inside of it and that my actions are the Lord and my dignity I declare that my fear is not the Lord's, but that his perfect love drives out that fear. That my relationships are the Lord's and the conversations that we have in them. And I think I just want to challenge everybody to maybe declare some of their own and let you know that when he told me to do that, he told me that it was more for me than it was for him because I'm more likely to remember and it's more likely to sit and, and have control over my life if I actually do it in such a way that it's public. Amen. Stand with me. Lord God, we pray that every person under the sound of my voice, has heard your voice through various vehicles today, including the most recent, that our heart would be your heart, 
our heart would be joined to you. Our heart would be steadfast to you. And we would choose to trust you in spite of what it looks like, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of what we're facing. That we would trust you because we really don't have any other choice. There's no one else that we can put our trust in. We proclaim today our faith, our heart towards you. And we do put ourselves in that posture that we can hear your voice and our heart can be uh, completely and solely yours. Lord Jesus, help us to resist lip service. But when we say something, Lord God, let it be rooted in our heart being steadfast towards you. But let us say, let us say what we need to say. But let us not abandon what we said when the calamity is gone, when the pressure's been removed. But join us to you. Join us to you tighter today. We will worship you. We will honor you. We will serve you in ways you've instructed us as you show us. Thank you for this time together today. I pray in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, God bless you. You're dismissed.